Welcome back to another episode of What Happens at Work. I'm Amy Frampton, the host and head of marketing at Bamboo HR. I am so excited to be here with you. As always, we'll listen to firsthand employee experiences, and then we'll dive into a conversation with an expert, using that story as a jumping off point to uncover what actually happens at work. In this episode, we'll talk about the changing landscape of gig work and full-time employment. But first, let's hear from Mike. My first job was really as a, a futures trader. I did that for about five years and I woke up one day, I was 27 years old and this was at the height of like the great financial crisis and the housing crisis and all this stuff. I just remember having this vision, like I looked at some of my colleagues who were like in their forties and I was like, man, I can't do this psychologically, emotionally, physically. It's just a very difficult thing to do. And I was reading a book called The Art of Learning. And I come across this uh, chapter called Investment in Loss. And until I heard that term, I always was like fighting for my progress to be linear and up and to the right. Like every day I had to make progress. And it was just this like tunnel vision of how you needed to progress as a human being like throughout your life. And investment in loss is basically like the core idea is that sometimes you just have to like blow up what you're doing, take a, a step back in order to make like a, a huge leap forward. And I read that and that week I, I quit. I went back to school, I got my MBA and I came out of that and helped start a company based in Seattle. And after that was sold, I, that's when I got hooked up in the consulting role. I started consulting for a large insurance company and I was uh, an innovation consultant. I was having kids and I was saying, all right, where can I do some cool stuff that didn't mean I have to fly all over the country? And I figured I wasn't a total corporate guy, but I said, this is going to be a great learning experience for me. And if we're able to be successful and maybe create some new companies, maybe I would run one of those and spin it out or something like that. So we decided we were going to design a kind of a, a product or service to help people find essentially gig work. We spent nine months just doing pitch decks and talking to executives and saying like, where is this going to go in the company? At that point, I was kind of drained and I just had enough. In one of my one-on-ones with my boss at the time, he sat me down and he was like, you know, you're paid really well. But like, we need you to fight these fights and do all this kind of stuff. And that was like the trigger for me because I listened to that and I said, that's not what would happen in the, in the non-employed world, right? Like somebody doesn't hang your pay over you. And so that was really the exact moment where I was like, okay, I got to hit the accelerator on my plans. It's the golden handcuffs, right? We're going to keep giving you bigger and bigger pay packages and it's going to be great, but they don't tell you about like the added complexity and stressors that have ramifications throughout all these other facets of your life. Those are the things that I was thinking about. It was right before Christmas 2018, I believe, is when I gave my notice and said, I'm done. So I started going through the exercise of what do I want and what do I not want? And so the idea there then became... I know digital marketing, I know search engine optimization. I'm gonna go get one really good client. So Mike and his business partner looked for a while and finally were able to find a company that understood the value of building up their team in the way Mike envisioned. I think having gone through a couple of startups, some failed, 
some worked. I, I kind of learned the value of patience. And I think having kids sort of helped that as well. I had three young kids at the time and I had come off of this sort of rat race startup experience. And that didn't feel good as a father and, and as a family person. We're a two income household. My wife's a doctor. She's got a way more important job than me. Like she deals with patients and medical issues and all this kind of stuff. So it was like, how do I engineer my, my work life to, to do that as well, right? Be the dad that can pick the kids up, but still be ambitious and still like try to build and be creative and have fun. I don't want to overwork myself. I'm not a guy that's going to spend 90 hours a week. I realized that that's a trap. It's more of me engineering the life I want than a specific business idea. That's how I thought about it and build the company around that. Since 2018, Mike has built and continues to grow his own digital media company, pushing himself and his collaborators towards more exploratory, creative, and curious ways to make their career paths work for them. Mike's experience is probably familiar to many, whether it's due to a lack of job fulfillment, opportunity, the effects of the pandemic or our own changing priorities, he's forging his own path into unknown territory. This great resignation or great reconsideration, great reshuffle, whatever you wanna call it that's happened over the years continues to be discussed, but is actually deeply misunderstood. I am so excited to share this conversation with this episode's expert, Joseph Fuller, professor at Harvard Business School who unpacks it all for us. Joe runs two projects, Managing the Future of Work and the Project on Workforce. He is also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We're thrilled to have you. We've all just heard Mike's story, and I'd love to hear your first reactions. My first reaction was one of thinking that Mike had pivoted several times in his career and several times seemed to pivot away from things uh, he had enjoyed and been motivated by, like when he was an entrepreneur, into more traditional roles, which he found stultifying and and unsatisfying. I think it is indicative of a situation that broadly affects people, that they very often take on roles based on a company's reputation or how much it pays. Certainly in my life, I would say half my friends who went to law school ultimately decided sometime later in their career they really didn't want to be a lawyer, but they really felt they should get a graduate degree because that's what people in their families did or what they thought their folks expected. And they ended up in the law and didn't like it. It seems like a really complicated situation and like he's trying to take this into his own hands and be really innovative. How do you think about the trend of independent contractor versus full-time? I have been an independent contractor. My husband right now has his own business. So I, I know that there are a lot of people out there doing it. How do you see those trends and the, the pros and cons? I think that there is an obvious growing trend to what used to be called contingent work. One thing that most people don't understand is it's really right across the income spectrum. People hear gig work, they think Uber, they think Instacart. They very often start thinking that the business model is somehow suspect or abusive. That isn't, by the way, borne out by data of surveys of those workers, 70 plus percent of whom like the gig and use it as a way to augment income. Before COVID and turbocharged by COVID was a rapid growth of high-skilled gig work. 
And there have been multiple platforms. People who are familiar with it will think of companies like Fiverr and Upwork. I was talking to the CEO there the other day, and they just added drone video editor. So you've got this growth of platforms that are specifically targeted for those higher skilled, higher paid workers. That allows a platform for that person like Mike, who's saying, I'm anxious, well, I can be in business tonight if I want to do a profile. I think it's also important for companies, Amy. Many companies are seeking the exact same type of talent. They want those performance marketers, data analysts, people who are very, very adept at using social media. It's easy to talk about Goldman Sachs or an Apple who should be able to get that talent. But what if you're a third tier auto component supplier that needs a machine learning specialist? Companies being able to tap into that world-class talent on a contract basis lets them variableize their cost structure and get access to talent they couldn't otherwise either source or afford. That's interesting. You know, a lot of folks that listen to our podcast are HR professionals or they're business founders. And so they're very intimately involved with wanting to have people in both types of full-time work, part-time work, and then these contractors or independent contractors what are the things that they should be looking out for as they look at those specialty skills that you talked about? Well, there are a lot of practical problems in involving someone from the outside in your key project. The first is that very few incumbent managers have any experience in having third-party contingent work as integral parts of their team. So it's a little bit like we've got a bunch of baseball players and we're handing them a lacrosse stick and saying, there's a ball, here's a stick, you wear a helmet, you know, God bless you. It's different. In larger companies, it immediately creates issues of decision rights. Whose budget is paying for this person? How are we going to inform other members of the team that this person exists? And what are we going to do when they figure out that the contractor is making 250% as much as they are per hour? Companies are basically set up to employ people or to get work done by one of three types of workers, a full-time worker, a part-time worker, or somebody who works for somebody else. They're not used to contingent workers. They're not used to job sharing. And I think one of the big advances we're going to see in the next decade is that more companies are going to have significantly more archetypal work relationships. They're going to start modifying and diversifying those types of employment relationships to reflect the reality of the supply-demand imbalances for a lot of key jobs. That's helpful. Thank you. So let's step back a little bit. And as we talked about this gig economy with consultants, how does the addition of that sort of worker change or affect workplace culture, remote or otherwise? Well, if it's not well managed, mostly badly, because that contingent worker, in most instances, doesn't have any experience with peers on the team, doesn't know all sorts of nuances about the company. They don't have what we call implicit or kind of ambient knowledge. So the biggest mistake that I think managers and companies engaging these potentially very important productive assets make is it kind of act like they've got a surrogate worker and they're supposed to act and perform like they're full-time employee till they're not. Well, they're not full-time employees and they're supposed to be a member of the team even though they're not a member of the team. So relative to dealing with the contractor, there are a couple of things. 
it requires a much more specific and well thought out work plan than a company normally has. With the team, it's not going to work very well to say, we got this really high, highly expensive pe- person because she can do a lot of stuff that you dummies can't. But if you say, we're getting some additional resources, some real expertise that's going to make this easier on all of us and up our chances of success and all of us being associated with the success, and here are two or three thoughts I have about how we engage this person what do you guys think? So get them as co-creators of the relationship with that person, but also just acknowledge that we are getting an infusion of talent, that we vetted the talent, and that we should all be relieved and happy that we're going to have a more successful project. That's helpful. Thank you. So I think about both COVID, which in my mind accelerated the remote workforce, even for, for full-time employees, And then the trend of the gig economy and more vendors, contingent workers, consultants, whatever you want to call them. How do those two factors affect workplace culture? We're really beginning to see some of the systems effects unfold for that. It's both an issue in culture and it's a big issue on onboarding. Not having that opportunity to let people bond, let people get to know each other. There's a lot that happens there because work is much more sociological phenomena than it is an economic phenomena. I mean, I'm always a bit amused when people start talking to me about work-life balance. What are they talking about? People spend a majority of their hours at work. Work is their life. And that doesn't mean they don't love their kids or they don't want to take care of their parents or whatever else. How have managers grown up? They haven't grown up managing remotely. And I'm doing some research right now that indicates that the worst turnover problem for a lot of companies is in supervisory people. And it's because the adrenaline surge of the emergency is behind them. Now they're managing individuals who have a lot of concerns, anxieties, and in some instances, some pretty unrealistic expectations about how this is all supposed to go forward. One thing that COVID did was really invite employees to take a much bigger position in deciding what they were willing to do, whereas historically the deal was the employer told you what they wanted you to do, and you did it. And if you didn't do it, usually you got fired. Getting into yet another year of everybody's got an exception, everyone's got a concern, Everyone's got an anxiety. I'm not saying their concerns are illegitimate, but that really puts a lot of burden on managers and it's beginning to show up. Are there things that your research shows that we should do to either support our managers or to support the broader group of of employees that are going through this and and do have expectations of what they're able to ask for that have changed? I think the single most important thing any manager company can do is keep reinforcing two things. First of all, that the company has a moral purpose and we're proud of what we do. And let's keep our eyes on that as opposed to all the things that could go wrong. The second for companies is to stop acting like you know what's going to happen next. So a lot of companies have really stubbed their toe by making you know some pronouncement from the mouth that a week from Monday, everyone's got to show up because the CEO had a vision that you know it's all going to be fine. What companies have to say is we're not sure we're going to do X, we're going to do Y, we're going to experiment. Companies have got to stop asking people, tell us what you want. Now, you can find ways to engage on what your employees' concerns are, and you'll start hearing some things that are concerns 
versus conditions. You know, I'm concerned about mass transit in New York is different than I am not going back to work five days a week. Those are two different thresholds. The company needs to think about what it actually requires. When I was a CEO in the consulting industry, I spent a lot of time in hotel rooms and we've all had that experience where you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, wait a second, is the bathroom left or right? And wasn't there like a table over there? You're kind of feeling your way in that room with not a lot of light. That's where we still are. And acknowledge that and act like that's your topology, not I'm going to flip on the lights. I'm going to tell everyone exactly what we're going to do going forward. And one of the things our CEO did at Bamboo, eight months in, I started at Bamboo HR two months before COVID. So I've been pretty much a COVID employee for two and a half years. (laughs) As he said, let's not pretend we're in charge. Like of what's going to happen with this. Smart. And here are three or four principles on how we're going to make our decisions. We can't tell mm-hmm. you exactly what we're going to do mm-hmm. because we're not in charge. Mm-hmm. That seemed to help our workforce yeah. of 1,200 because they knew at least we had principles that we were making them on yep. and that we kind of understood the realities. I think your CEO ought to be in the business related to HR. <laughs> I think so too. That, that's really yeah. well done. Too many people have responded, interestingly, like the exit from this is the same as the entrance. We're in a crisis. This is what you do. March 2020, I get it. But the back end is different. This isn't crisis management anymore. This is actually old-fashioned being a good manager. And too many people are rooted in the war economy thinking and not taking a step back and saying, how are we going to come out of this being a better organization as opposed to being the organization we were coming into it. I'd love to hear more about the project you're doing on the future of work at Harvard Business School and some of the key findings, themes that you see. We set out to say, what are the types of issues that a decision maker, a CEO, a minister in a government, a governor, a mayor, a a CHRO, really ought to understand the underlying phenomena well as they approach questions of how do I deal with these presenting problems? We've also looked extensively at gender issues. One thing that very few executives really have strung the pearls together on is they increasingly are looking for workers with superior social skills. A social skill is the capacity to deal with other human beings. And why are they looking for that? Because if technology takes over more routine work, more of what's left is what you can't automate. So if a store manager... 30 years ago was literally checking physical inventory. All of that is happening on a remote basis now. So they've got more time. What do you want them to be doing at that time? Being on their cell phone, playing Sudoku? No, you want them out teaching your workers, managing your workers, interacting with customers. The brutal reality for people like me, by which I mean males, is that women significantly outperform men on most standardized measurement of social skills. And 58% of college enrollees in the United States today are women. Women are an absolute majority of master's degree candidates in the United States. So higher academic attainment, higher social skills cohort that companies are going to be relying on are going to be increasingly female. If I'm sitting with the executive committee of a large company, I'll then ask a rhetorical question, which is, do you think your work relation, your work processes, your job descriptions, your requirements for advancement are 
conducive to having a majority of the people in your white collar, high impact, high mobility jobs be female. And if you do, then let me sit down and calm my nerves because you're the first company that's ever said that to me. So we're trying to explore the underlying economics of some of the phenomena that decision makers have got to address and get them to understand it more fully and more accurately. And it's been really exciting to work on. So we've talked a lot as a society about the great resignation. The last six or eight months became kind of a buzzword. And how do you think those trends, particularly the great resignation, have affected culture, but also this gig economy? I think the great resignation is badly misunderstood. So my research indicates if you look at the resignation rate since 2009, it's been going up at a very steady slope. And if you draw a line through that data, when you get to 2022, you hit our current resignation rate. 2020 is the anomaly. People got nervous that they didn't want to give up a role not knowing where they're going to land. By 2021, you're right back on that trend line. Americans have been quitting for a long time and quitting at an accelerated rate. That really raises an interesting issue for people, which is what's driving that again? So this is a continuing great resignation. If you start unpacking it, it's the way it's portrayed is usually inaccurate. A huge driver of the great resignation is a significant increase in early retirement. When you think back, that makes a lot of sense because this was a disease state that asymmetrically was dangerous for older workers. I think also their motivations, like a lot of people, particularly at the beginning of COVID and even halfway through it, they thought their IRAs would look pretty good. If they owned a home, they thought their equity in their house was pretty good. That's still the case. They probably were now helping if they were blessed with kids or grandkids, maybe being asked on to help more with that. They're also have clearly been an increase in what I call the great reconsideration, which is the role of work in my life. And we saw a marked increase in anxiety, depression, and other manifestations of mental illness. The number of people, this data suggests that really had some significant manifestations of that went from about eight to 9% to 22, 23%. COVID did accelerate some trends like resignation, like early retirement, like the adoption of technology that were latent before COVID, but now they really got visible. The second is it has caused a number of people to rethink the role of their specific job they currently held in their lives, what I call the great reshuffle, because what happened, particularly at middle and lower wages, You'll notice there was a great resignation, but the unemployment rate was going down. So people weren't resigning and then going to the beach. People were resigning and going somewhere else. And you saw massive intersectional shifts. People leaving industries like hospitality, going to things like logistics and transportation or healthcare. I think the overarching theme is that COVID caused workers to rethink the power dynamic with the employer. Historically, I offered you a job. These are my expectations for your hours. That's the deal. Would you like this job? I'd be delighted if you took it. And it was up to the employer to stipulate what those conditions are and the employee to decide whether they wanted to accept it. Now the door is much more open to, I have a right to ask questions. Why does it have to be that way? And if you show you're not interested or you're not going to be responsive, I'll start looking elsewhere. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed it and I've learned a ton. Thanks for that opportunity, Amy. 
I was fascinated by this conversation and I walked away with so many more questions about how the employment landscape continues to change and how as a manager I can continue to show up and react to the needs of the people I work with. And I'll definitely remember that the culture we create, the policies, the onboarding, the hiring and recruitment for full-time employees, contractors, freelancers, all impact what happens at work. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What Happens at Work. We hope you've been enjoying the conversation so far. You can go back and listen to previous episodes where we uncover everything from first impressions to psychological safety. Big thanks to Mike for sharing his story and to Professor Joseph Fuller for his expertise. You can learn more about Joe on the hbs.edu website or at aei.org where Joe is a fellow. Thanks to our Bamboo HR team, Sweetfish Media, and our awesome producer, Alana Nevins. You can learn more about Bamboo HR at bambooHR.com.